right, here we go. So we're in session three, Paul praying, believers impact the lives of other believers through prayer. This is going to be out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses uh, 13 through 17, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. So go ahead and stick your fingers in those places. We will be there momentarily. Um, yeah, the, so if you've got your books, I'm not going to... They, I, I'll cover the points that they have, but I'm going to make some other points out of this passage because there's more here. And we have, it, it's a very doctrinal heavy passage. And as uh, evangelicals, we have been in the last 50 years avoiding teaching doctrine because doctrine often isn't practical, but it is. Because doctrine is what we stand on when the world starts asking questions that we don't really have good answers for. And we don't have good answers because we don't study that sort of stuff anymore. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look at that and we will go through the lesson that they that they've offered out of it. Um, because things need to be practical, but some things are just knowledge that is practical because it's what we believe. And yeah, maybe it doesn't have any meaning to you personally today, but we live in troublesome times where people are questioning or, or saying, you know, you're, you, that we are this way or that way, and we don't know. And a lot of the evangelicals are like, well, we're supposed to, the world is dictating what, our, what we're supposed to believe or how we're supposed to act based on what they believe we should believe. And that's not true. So we're going to do a little bit of that. So it's going to be a little bit uh, different in some respects. But let's start with our opening passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. <coughs> Does everybody see it? Yeah. Yeah. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or of mouth or by letter. All right. First fruits. When we talk about first fruits, what are we talking about? <coughs> the first generation that heard, heard and believed the truth. Okay. That, that's, that's one way to view it. Sacrifice. Okay. But expand. God asks us our first fruits. So God. what are our first fruits? Our, 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 the thing that we need to give to him first before we do anything else. Okay, so what is that? What does that mean? That's either uh, time, money, uh, something of yourself, something to um, just to show him how much we love him. Okay. I'm still not giving you what you want, right? Yeah. It's a great Christian word. What does it mean? 
The best. The best? The best art. Mine says belief in the truth. Okay. But what are first where does this idea come from? Let's start with no, that. We give harvest. to God. Sacrifice. The harvest. There we go. It comes from the harvest. If we go back into the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel came into the land that God gave them, he gave them a law. He gave them a rule. And he declared that the first fruits, that meant the first part of the harvest. Anybody ever have an apple orchard or any orchard? No? Okay. The best apples. When you would pick the apples, those first apples, are they better than the ones that come at the end of the season that it's almost, you know, maybe the first frost is coming all that? Which ones are better? The first ones. Yeah. Yeah. In, when, when, when I was in Israel, they would do the first pressing of olive oil. And the first pressing was the best pressing of the olive oil. And then they, so they take the olives and they dump them into uh, the trough. Like yeah, the trough. Did you step on them? No. <laughs> they roll the stone around on it. And that stone goes around and around and the oil spills over and they gather, you know, and it gets collected and all that. Then they take and scrape all that out that they just crushed. And they put it into these like baskets and they press it. And then they put it into a finer basket and they press it. So the extra virgin olive oil that we all love and buy at the store is that first where the stone just goes round and round and crushes the initial olives. That's, that's the first pressing. Well, the first olives off the tree are the plumpest and most ripe best olives, just like with, with orchards and stuff. It's the best. It's the first. When you get later in the season, the apples get smaller. They're a little scrawnier. Yep. You can even take that a step further. You know, when you're looking forward to a meal and something, you really want to have that first bite. Oh, yeah. It's always the best bite. Isn't that very sure, let's face it. Leftovers? Yeah. That leftovers are always a, now some things are better leftover like soup is always better the next day after it marinates but but most of the time when you make like the Thanksgiving meal when that turkey's right out of the oven and you put it on the table and you slice up those first but about half an hour into the meal the turkey begins to cool it's okay and then you put it in the fridge and it's like gravy for yeah, like, <laughs> yeah you put it in the fridge and you know you have Thanksgiving on Thursday and by like Sunday you're like Turkey again, <laughs> you know. The, the, but that when you first got that thing out of the oven, you're like, oh, it's salivating. Yeah, the first fruits are the are the the first, the best, and the crispest, most ripe, and all that. First fruits for the Israelites were gods. So when you started the harvest, when you're standing there looking out of your field, you go, yep, it's ready, and you go out. And you spend the day, you're harvesting off that bunch. You would take that and it's set aside for God. If you look at Exodus chapter 23, uh, verses 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. That was, 
that, that's in Exodus. It's where God's giving the law. That's the rule, the first fruits. He reminds them, Deuteronomy 18.4, as they're going into the land now, Moses tells them, the first fruits of your grain, your wine, your oil, the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give to him, being God. The first fruits belong to God. Even your, your first child, your first male born, had to be redeemed because he belonged to God. But God didn't want human sacrifice. So you would take an animal and would offer it to God for that first child to redeem him because it belonged to God. So the first fruits, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. You, Thessalonians, are the first fruits to be saved. God has taken his portion that are the Thessalonians. These people, they were the first fruits of the Macedonian areas. They were the first. And so they they were they they belonged to God. Now we all belong to God, but there was something special about them. And um, Paul is using this to tell them, you know, it's life is hard. Remember, they're they're under great persecution. You belong to God. You're His. You're His first fruits. He's using this to build them up to encourage them that they are important. Um, and that's true for all of us. We're, we're his first fruits of his labor, especially if you're like the first in your family to be saved. Or you're that. We're, there, there's, there's something about that first time, that first group that comes that's special to God. Um, we don't understand what he does with it, why he commanded it. Um, and he uses that, uh, that we are, we're, we're important. Because he's already, he's done all the work and we're the harvest. So let's remember that as we see what's happening in the world with all the, with all the nonsense going on right now, um, I'm expecting life is gonna get difficult. They are protesting like crazy out there because of the whole Roe versus Wade overturn. And they're blaming us. And they, they, they've got all sorts of, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all sorts of nasty stuff is going on. And it's, uh, it's going to cause problems. It's going to cause problems in our workplaces because sure. they're going to be those who see us as haters of women or, or whatever. I mean, they, they've got, the slogans are just uh, crazy. And we need to, to amaze is they they're, kill, they're they're haters of babies because they kill them, but they don't see it that way, right? Right. No, they don't. They they see it as haters of women and all that. I'm just saying we we need to remember we're God's first fruits. We are belong to Him and we are special to Him, regardless of what the world thinks. And that's what Paul is trying to do, because these people are being you know you don't you don't worship the emperor. How can you not worship the emperor? Uh, and all that, and they're, they're being battered and beaten by it. Anyway, just wanting to point that out as we, as we look at this, that he calls us the first fruits, that they were the first fruits and that they were suffering. All right, so I want to move into a piece of uh, doctrine that is here. 
this is uh, it's complicated and it's long argued and it's not a new argument. As we look at this passage, we see that Paul is explaining that we are called to him, that he has chosen us um, to be saved. And this, after the Reformation, sparked a great debate in the Protestant movement of whether or not are we called to God or do we choose him? And the argument goes uh, in this manner. There's free will. You have the ability to think for yourself. You have the ability to choose and that's what free will is. On the other side of the argument, now we call that Arminianism. Uh, the Arme Arminius was a um, theologian who said that I, I make the choice. I choose God, and I choose to be saved, and all that. On the other side of the argument is sovereignty. Is God sovereign over his world? Well, everybody, for the most part, would say yes. But is he sovereign over me? Well, if I have free will, is God sovereign? If I can choose, or does God choose? And if God chooses, does that mean God chooses people to go to hell? Because not everybody's saved, are they? People die without knowing. So which is it? Is God, is it God, or is it me? So do I damn myself to hell, or is God damning me to hell? Well, he is sovereign, but he is sovereign, so he's decided that he will not interfere with our free will. See, that's the argument. <laughs> <laughs> He's ready to fight for knives. <laughs> this side is called Calvinism. John Calvin, many of us know him. He's, he's a lot of our relig religious groups are based <laughs> off of John Calvin. And Calvin said that no, God is sovereign. Now the problem is, here's where the problem arises. Both of these things appear from Scripture to be true, but they are mutually exclusive, are they not? You can't be God's in charge, and you can't be, have somebody making a choice. They're mutually exclusive. But it's only mutually exclusive out on the edges, the extremes. And so the extreme free will says, I, will deci I decide if and when I want to be saved. That's what, that's what far, the, the far side of free will says. I'm the guy who decides. God doesn't decide. He doesn't get to pick for me. I'll decide that. And so they are the more um, Pentecostal churches that are out there. They believe you can lose your salvation, but not by God's choice, but by mine. I, I can decide not to be saved. I can decide whether I want to be saved or not saved, and I can decide that moment by moment, day by day, and all that. So I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm. And really, what it means is that I want to, I want to live my life my way, and I want to sin how I want to sin, and I don't care about God. But then, you know, I don't want to go to hell either. So I'm going to rechange my mind and 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 do that. See, and that's that, that's the far end of this argument, is that it's it's about me, which. My reading in scripture is that when it's about me, it's self-centered, which is exactly 
takes us back to the Garden of Eden with Satan and the whole thing, then I, I make the choice that, that God's not actually in charge and I'm God and I make the decision. The, problem, the, the other problem, though, is on the far end of Calvinism, and we get them, we call them five-point Calvinists, and they, they've got, there's a whole bunch of stuff. They say, God decides if and when I am to be saved. <coughs> and uh, I have no part to play in this. And we get this whole argument going, and the far side of Calvinism says, well, we don't even need missionaries. And yes, there are, there are churches out there that believe we don't need missionaries, we don't need to do evangelism, because whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved because God decided it, and so that's it. We don't, we don't need to do anything. And see, that's the other end of it, because I'm not personally responsible. If I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven because God said so. And if you're going to hell, well, that's where you're going because God decided it too bad for you. See, and that's the other end of this argument. The problem is, is that God told us, Jesus himself told us to do what? Yeah, go into all the world, preaching and teaching. Yeah. Well, we're, we're supposed to do that. So the far end of this can't be right either. So what's right? Well, I want to put truth right there somewhere in the middle. Both of these are true, and they are mutually exclusive, but we don't understand how they're true. This is one of those, Paul talks about the mysteries of God. And somehow, God is in control of our world, but he isn't sending people to hell because he does leave us the chance, the choice to follow him. And it is a choice we make, and Paul tells us we make it moment by moment, don't we? It isn't a once and done thing. But God has chosen those who are going to be the elect, and that's what Paul's talking about here, is that to this you were called through our gospel so that you may obtain glory. These are, the idea is that this is God's choosing. Because God tells us that he has known us since before the foundation of the world. Well, how does that work? Yeah. I can't explain that. These are the mysteries of God. These are the deeper things. And as evangelicals, we've quit teaching on this sort of stuff. And so now the world and its tumultuous mess. mess. Yeah, there you go. That's a great... It's tumultuous mess is trying to define what we believe. And the problem is, is there are too many of us that don't know what we believe exactly. We've just believed the church. And we don't know. we got a lot of pastors out there who don't understand. This, is, this isn't practical. This isn't simple. It's complicated. It's a lot of arguing amongst people in the church. You know what? It's not. What we need to understand is that God is so much greater than us. That's part of our problem. We want to bring God down to our level. We want to make him practical so we can understand him. We need to quit trying to make God practical. He's not. He is so far beyond us. He's God and we're not. Right. It's incomprehensible. How does this work? How do mutually exclusive ideas work? I don't know. It's okay that I don't know. I need to know that these are true. I need to choose to follow Christ. And I need to do it moment by moment. On the other hand, he's chosen me. And it isn't universal grace. This is where we get the people who want to say, 
God has chosen us. He chose everybody. And so everybody's got this is where the idea of purgatory comes in. Because Jesus came, God chose all of mankind, and so everybody, unless you really, really are bad, you're going to go to heaven eventually. We've all been saved by God. And some of us are going to get there early, and some of us are going to get there late. And we're, no, that's not how it works. Because if somebody doesn't want God, God is not going to make them want him. He is willing to abide by their choice to not want him, and they'll go to hell. And that's, how, that's the choice we have. Do we want him, or we don't want him? If we don't want him, then he's not going to have us. But he's chosen. And how he chose, I don't know. We're told that he chose Jacob over Esau before he was ever born. He says plainly he hated Esau. I hated Esau? That's a complex comprehend, to comprehend. How could God hate somebody? Esau hadn't even done anything yet. He wasn't even born. And yet God had decided he hated him. How'd you like to go around with that? No thanks. How does that work, though? Is that even fair? Or does God arbitrarily make these decisions? Again, we don't know. So we want to drag him down to where we are and redefine this sort of stuff so that it makes sense or fair to us in our mind. But it isn't. We've got to leave God up there and out of our understanding that he is, and accept that he's God. That's why I worship him. Because he is so much bigger and beyond us. Again, not practical. But we need to understand this is the way our Bibles work. And that the world doesn't get to dictate this stuff to us because they're deciding what love is. I mean, Chris has already has done a whole series on what the world says is love. And that, that's how we have to, that's what God has to be like. And that's not true. God is not the way we want him to be. He is what he has always been. And in this case, the truth is he has granted mankind free will to choose him. And he has already chosen those whom he wants. And I don't understand how the two go together. But he draws us to him. And those of us who choose him are his. And he's already chosen us. Comments, questions. Go ahead. How then do we pray for the unsaved? Just as Paul does. He prays constantly for them. But what like we we our job is not to figure out. That's what the guys over here say. We, we, we have to figure out who God wants so we don't waste our time on those that he doesn't. That's, we, we pray for them as we always do, that they will come to him. That they will, like, that he will open their ears? That hear. they'll, yeah, sure. That they'll open, that they will be open to the gospel. There are those who choose not to be open. I mean, I, I've had students like that. Go ahead, Carl. George Mueller had two friends. <clears throat> I don't know if you know who George Mueller is. Okay. But anyway, he had two friends and he prayed for them all his life. And they didn't come to know the Lord before he died. But they came to know the Lord after he died. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's true. They did. <laughs> Go ahead, Cindy. That's why God said in his words that his ways are not our ways. We can't understand. You can't figure him out when you think you got him. Because you no. try to put him in a box and you can't do it. Doctrine is, is about what is true that we understand and in these times it's what we have to stand on 
Nobody ever thinks of the foundation of their house, do you? You don't walk through your house and go, you know what, that's a great foundation. No, you walk through the house and go, man, that's a beautiful window. Or the painting on the wall, look at that, I love those pictures. Or I like how you stenciled that border. Or we, we look at the furnishings. I have never gone to somebody's house and said, hey, I want you to come down to the basement and check out my foundation. <laughs> I mean, nobody does that, right? That's, we don't. And that's what doctrine is. When we teach on this sort of stuff, it's not exciting. It isn't. It, it is practical because it's what we're standing on. It's that foundation that when life gets rough, that's the problem. The last hundred years, particularly as Americans, we have not had to struggle with being Christians. It's been easy. And so this sort of stuff has gotten pushed off to the side as not being practical or useful in our daily lives. And so we haven't worried about it. And now we have generations of people who don't know what they believe or why they believe it. And the world is now hostile towards us. And they're trying to define us. And we don't know how to define ourselves. We've got to get back to teaching and talking about this. I am neither, I get people who ask me, who usually have got some little bit of learning, whether I'm an Arminianist or a Calvinist. You know what, I'm not either. I'm somewhere between the two because it isn't one side or the other. Everybody wants to polarize things, and we live in a very polarized world. You're Republican, you're a Democrat. You're conservative or you're liberal. Well, you know what, God is somewhere in between everything. Um, I mean, really, if you look at, at what God tells us to do in the Old Testament, it's very socialistic. The very concept that you're responsible to take care of your neighbor, you leave grain in the field for the poor. You know, those are socialist ideas. The thing is, is that socialism is a great idea on paper. But it only works when you have a benevolent father in heaven who can oversee the system, who doesn't need anything out of the system. The reason communism happens in socialism is because it's run by men who decide they want more or they're better than everybody else and that they should decide what you need and what you get and all that so that they can keep more for themselves. Greed gets in the way. Uh, but God isn't like us. And so it works because he doesn't need anything from us or for us. Arminianism and Calvinism, it's not either or. It's both. We have free will, and God is sovereign. So now back into our passage. And we'll get with uh, this whole thing. So uh, this is going to be section three of our outline of 2 Thessalonians. And um, it's injunctions. Paul has some injunctions for them. And uh, he tells us a few things. First of all, he tells us to stand firm. We, are, we can stand firm because God has chosen us. It isn't wholly responsible our job. We don't have to earn salvation. We've been chosen. We've been picked. God looked down upon the world before he created it and decided those of us who are going to be his chosen, his elect. Paul reminds them that we can hold to that truth, that being steadfast is possible. 
Because it isn't reliant upon us. Yes, we chose Christ. In whatever manner that, that works out, again, I don't understand it, but, more, but God chose us first. <clears throat> and so we stand on that. Having described the utter ruin of the disobedient, remember last week's lesson where it talks about what's going to happen when the lawless man comes, that he gives us over to our own delusions. He says, you don't want me? Okay, fine. Don't have me. Here you go. Have the lawless man. Follow him. And all that goes with it. Having described the utter ruin of the disobedient through willfulness and deception, Paul encourages the Thessalonians by placing them in an entirely different category. They had believed the truth, were loved by God, and were called to share in his glory. Paul wanted them to stand firm in the truth of what he taught them, not shaken by false rumors. See, this is where it's practical. Understanding that doctrinal principle that God chose us, but that they didn't know they were chosen until Paul called them, came and told them. And then they had to accept that they were chosen and stand firm. And we can stand firm in this tumultuous world that we're now living. As these protests begin ratcheting up, and I think it's going to get worse as we get towards closer to November. They're going to politicize this and weaponize those of us who are on one side of this debate and those that are on the other. And, I, I, you know, you, you see that there are companies lining up saying, you know what, we're going to pay to send people to wherever they need to go in order to get those abortions that they want. And all this is going to, it's already in the workplace. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I was, was going to say, I just saw a commercial where already the two men running for governor are bringing it up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. like you said, they, I saw a commercial where they both made their stand. And it's, that's going to how people are going to vote. Yeah. That's probably going to be the number one thing, right? Well, I, I, I don't know. They would like it to be the number one thing. They want it to be, yeah, because it polarizes. This is what we got to do. This is what Paul's saying. Hold on to the truth. What's the truth? God chose us. Amen. And when we found out, we chose him. And between those two, we are the elect of God. We are separate from the world, and they are falling for the lie that's out there. And this lie, we're seeing it growing and becoming stronger. It's been kind of just simmering in the background for most of our lives. We knew it was there, but we've all ignored it. The church has ignored it because we've lived in a time of prosperity and acceptance. And now that lie, that deception has reared its head and is now taken front and stage and is beginning to take control and power and we are quickly becoming the enemy. Which leads me to my next point. As we look at this passage, I'm going to go back and look at it again. There we go. There's a little phrase in here. And uh, I think this is so important is that we understand as Christians just who we are. Do you see it? Let me, let me highlight it for you. You may obtain the glory of God. This is important. This is, I, I think, downplayed and isn't... Uh, really understood to this he called you God 
called you, called me, through the gospel. That's the mode which we're supposed to go out and preach. That's our part. So that we may obtain the glory of Jesus. You have the glory. How much glory does Jesus have? All glory. And we share in that. Can you believe that? Yeah, wow. I, I think we, we, we miss this because we try to avoid the doctrinal. Uh, it's just, what's practical about that? What's practical about being in the glory? I'm not a nobody. Hmm. I am so chosen that I share in the glory of Jesus. His glory. This is the guy who came, died for me, suffered for me, all that, ascended to the right hand of the Father and is sitting at the right hand in the glory of God, which we have described by Isaiah as being so amazing he had to fall flat on his face and cower before it. Then Moses could not perceive it from the front, could only perceive it from the back, and it changed him in such a manner that he radiated it. The glory of God is described in Revelation causing all those who didn't believe to fall down weeping because of the glory of God that they have rejected. That they couldn't bear to be in front of it. And we get to obtain that glory in Christ. It is shared with us. Is it practical? Oh yeah. Because that's who we are. When we understand who we are, our identity in Christ is glory sharers. It's not our glory. We're wearing his glory. He shares it with us. It's kind of like when you're a little kid, when, when you're a little kid and you go to you go to the bathroom and dad puts a little aftershave on you, or mom puts a little bit of perfume on you, and you like come strutting out. Oh yeah. I am all that and then some. And you, you know, if you're a little girl, you run to daddy. Smell me, daddy. Yeah, I have three little girls, and they would do this because now. You're, you smell like mommy now. You're sharing her glory. Guess what? That's what we are doing. We're sharing in the glory of Christ. This is important. It is practical. Sharing in the glory is not something additional to salvation, but is a filling out of part of its content. That's what being saved is, is we're radiating the glory of Christ in our lives. It is practical because when people look at us, they should see Jesus. They should see the glory that he has. They should be looking at us and going, what's different about you? And that's what's problem in the world today. We are forgetting that we are the glory of Christ. And we've taken the fighting and belittling each other in the church. And we're arguing and all that. And so now the world looks at us. You're not any different than us. We become corporate America. We're ladder climbing, backstabbing, infighting, middle managers trying and screaming to get the CEO to notice us so we can get promoted or get a bigger slice of the pie or whatever. For what? We have the glory of Jesus. We're his glory. We, we got it. We, we, we can't get any more. There's nothing more glorious in all of creation than Christ. And he said, here's some of me. Here's some of my glory. Let me clothe you in it. 
practical? If we remember that and act accordingly, the world is going to look at us and see the glory of Christ. And all this nonsense that's going on out there, that they're trying to push onto us, they're going to they're, they're gonna, they're gonna look at it and they're going to go, yeah, no, I don't think so. Because they don't want none of that. We know this because John describes it when they, when they stand before him. They're not going to be happy, but they're going to acknowledge the glory of God. They will bow the knee. Not that they're going to submit to us, but they're going to see it. And it's going to make them realize their own ugliness. They say that we're unloving. That the commercials are running, that we're unloving, we don't care about women, we don't know all this. No, what they don't see is how ugly and disgusting killing children is. They don't see that. And why? Because we're not showing the glory of Christ through us. We, we need to be living that out. We need to make this our identity. I don't identify as a Republican. I don't identify as a Democrat, a Libertarian, or any other group out there. I identify as Christ. I am Christ. I am in him. His glory is through me. The only identity I need is to be him. And I need to be living that manner. That's what Paul is saying. We have been called to this. Hang on to it. Quit exchanging it for something not as noble or glorious. We keep putting on otherworldly tags and taking off the glory of Christ and just saying, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. If you're not wearing the glory, then you're not. And that's why we've got supposed Christians and, and pastors out there marching with the pro-choice people saying that it's unchristian to be pro-life and all that. We've got such confusion. Comment, question. I had heard that talking about companies paying for their employees to have an abortion, I had heard that it's cheaper for them mm -hmm. to have the abortion than it is to have the child take the time off, the insurance. Oh, yeah. It's like a lie within a lie. In, insurance is not cheap when you get when you start moving to family with multiple people and stuff. Oh, sure, it costs companies a whole lot yeah, more. So it's not that they're like so wonderful. They're Everything is not politi is political. Some of it is uh, the bottom, line. bottom line. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on. Gonna run out of time. All right, Second Thessalonians chapter two, sixteen and seventeen. Somebody read that. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We are to be encouraged. We are to be encouraged because, three things. One, we have eternal comfort. Being saved, being chosen by God means he's taking care of us. We have eternal comfort. All the comfort you could want. But it's eternal. We got to quit looking at this world and look for worldly comfort. That's part of the problem. We fall into the deception of the world and that we want to be comfortable here. 
Well, you know what? There are a lot of evil people that are very comfortable here because they're in charge and, and all that. You know where they're not going to be comfortable? <laughs> in eternity. We have got to remember where our home is. We have been chosen for eternal comfort. We have been chosen to be there. We have to pass through here, and it may not be easy, but it is so much better. It's superior to this world. This world is but a shadow of the next, and we've got to remember that. So we need to be encouraged. That should be encouraging us. Second, we have hope. Go out on the street, talk to anybody that isn't a believer, and they have no hope. That's why they're so upset. Because they see this as ruining their lives. Oh, what if I get pregnant and I don't have the money, or I don't want the baby, or I don't like the guy, and all that. Well, they think they're stuck now. Wow, such a terrible thing. Right? Because they have no hope. There's only this life. I got one chance to get it right and to enjoy all that I can enjoy, and then I'm dust. <coughs> I'm dead. I'm buried. And this baby is going to ruin my chances at enjoyment of life, and I only get one. This, is, this whole thing is born out of hopelessness. It's not a matter of they don't love children or they do love children. It's a hopelessness that I've messed up and I'm not going to be able to get the life that I, that I want and I only get one chance at it. Is that a question, Amy? Yeah. I, there's so much confusion out there right now about this whole Roe v. Wade. They haven't outlawed abortion. They just transferred it from a federal thing to a state thing. So oh, totally. It's outrage. It's not like, oh, I can never have an abortion again. Well, a lot of there's seven. As of this morning, I saw seven states have outlawed abortion totally. Yes, I saw that too. Which means that the elected officials that were elected by the people—that's what they wanted. So they wanted it, and it isn't the majority. That's the thing. It isn't the majority, but they want it to be a federal thing because then everybody will be the same. See, this is born out of equity. We want everybody to be equal and everybody to be the same. So all the states have to be the same, which was never the intent in the first place. Right. Uh, you know, and so, but they do because let's face it, if you're a left wing liberal, it's easier to lobby at the federal government than to have to lobby at each and every state or local thing. That costs a lot of money and that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, trying to keep a lie going with that many people involved it usually collapses. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder if underneath a lot of this that's going on is that this whole reset thing. I mean, they're creating diversionary tactics to what's really going on mm -hmm. underneath all of it. It's, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's going to become the main thing when election time comes around. Possibly. And the, the whole time underneath all this is going on is the, is the total reset. Well, and, and even that is, is not even, it's distracting from what the problem is. The problem is, is we don't submit to the sovereignty of God. We have been, as a country, sliding farther and farther away from it, and we just happen to be the generation that's here where we've, we've moved so far from God that he, we're, making, we're remaking him in our own image. We have a lot of wolves in the pulpit 
right now. Oh, they do. Preaching that this is all good. Yeah. And it's not. But our hope, we, we need to remember where our hope is. Our hope is in the fact that God is sovereign and that this is not new to him. He isn't watching CNN going, okay, what's going on? <laughs> he knew before he ever created this that today was going to be today. And what was going to happen, and he's not caught off guard. And we are to be encouraged that it's okay. It's okay that this happened. It's okay that protesters are burning down buildings and all. It's okay. God's in control and he knows what he's doing. That's our hope. That's the hope we have. And if that's not hopeful to you, I don't know how to help you because God, there's nobody bigger than God. But they add so much to it. Like they're oh. so afraid of this leading into like other rights getting taken away. Oh, sure. That's what they're talking you about. Know, they're, it's just like stirring the pot. You know, just like. Well, but if we go back, we know what God wanted for mankind. He told us. This is what I want for you. And it, we, we don't believe that it's the best for us. That's the problem. We don't think he has our best interest in mind. We have fallen to the lie of Satan that God is keeping good things from us. The only thing Eve gained by eating the fruit was the knowledge of evil. She had the knowledge of good. She knew God personally. And all good comes from God. She, the only thing she gained was the knowledge of evil. What good did that do? Exactly, and that's a, that we, we think yeah. we fall for this lie. Oh, God's just keeping that. We, we I, I should be allowed to marry a guy if I want it, or whatever it is. That, that's a good thing. No, it isn't. God said it wasn't. We got to believe that. That's our hope. All right, thirdly, we are established in good works. We need to be encouraged that God is giving us. The ability to do good works. And that that's what we need to be doing as we do this. Comment, question. Be encouraged. Be steadfast. I just had a comment. Go ahead. You know, I mean, this time had to come where people who don't want the truth, they have to go that way because there's no other way to go. Mm -hmm. They have to believe the lie. Those who love the truth have to go. Well, and that's and that's where we come back to that chart that it is a choice. God gives us the ability to choose to believe Him. We have that. Now, how He chose us, I don't know. I don't understand how it works, but He did. Go ahead. It goes back to who we are in Christ. It's the cross. It's the blood that covers us, and that's our distraction. Yeah. Because we're forgetting who we are in Christ. We're a child of the King. Oh yeah. And so we need to start acting like. Again, it, it, Chris has been harping on it, our identity. The problem is, is our identity as Western Christians has been tied up in being Americans. And that means apple pie and football and all those things. You know what? That isn't Christianity. That isn't Christ-likeness. Those are just national things, but they're not who I am in Christ. Being, I, I put it down. The, the ability to do good works is my identity. That I am able to channel Christ into the world through my actions and deeds and choices. That's his glory coming out of me. That's my identity. That's who I am. All right. Thess 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. 
and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Okay, so Paul is calling the Thessalonians, who are suffering, who are having all these questions that they don't understand the, the, whether Christ came again or didn't come again. They're in turmoil. Paul says, pray for us. Paul prayed for them. Pray for us. Which tells us you don't have to get it all your act together. And we can be concerned and be able to pray for others and all that. We need to be prayerful. Not because prayer changes God or changes anything. But because it helps us to remember our place. It helps us to know what's going on. It helps us to be connected to God. So that as the world throws whatever it's got at us, we know our place. We need to pray for others because we're supposed to be other-focused. I think all too often our prayer lives are self-focused and not other-focused, which calls, uh, causes problems. So we need to be prayerful. Um, we need to, for deliverance of evil people. Paul was facing terrible issues as he was in Corinth and Athens and all that. The Greeks were not impressed with Christianity. Um, Paul was facing great opposition from the Jews as well. And he is asking that he would be delivered from evil people. And secondly, that people would be saved, which again, if it's Christ, this goes back to that whole argument. Which one is it? Paul is asking them to pray that there will be people that will come to the Lord. So did God choose them? Why is Paul bothering? Well, because that's the job we've been given to do. And he wants to see those people make that choice to accept what God has called them to. See, it's very complicated. But it is very important because they're both true. And here we have Paul asking for prayer that people would be saved. I don't even know if you know people that are unsaved, unbelievers. Are you praying for them? If you don't know any, you need to go find some. I'm sure you don't have far to look in your neighborhood. I'll bet there are a few. Unless you're living in a monastery or something, I don't know about it. Yeah. Even they might not be saved. <laughs> I was going to say, I have a friend way back, you know, for 40-some years now, that she's not a Christian, and her father just recently died. And that really brings them into question, you know, yeah. that she's now really struggling. Yeah. And part of her wants to believe. Mm -hmm. However, her heart isn't open to it yet. Yeah. And so thank you for that reminder yeah. that I have to pay, pray. Well, and, yeah, it, 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 yeah, God made a choice, but we have a job to do. And just because he chose them before the foundation of the world doesn't mean it happened the day they were born. Uh, there's a whole lot of life that goes in there, and they, need, they still need somebody to show them. All right, one more passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, 3 through 5.
May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of his All right. Be faithful. It calls us to be confident. We have hope. We can be encouraged in it and all that. And we need to be confident. The difference between uh, being encouraged means that I'm okay with it. Being confident means I go out and do something with it. There is a little difference in that. One takes us to action. God will guard us against Satan. That means we can go out into that world and we can stroll through knowing that Satan has no control over us. We are his. And he's going to take care of us. God will guard us against Satan. We don't have to worry. We need to choose to do the right thing. We need to be confident and make that choice and say, you know what, I'm going to do this regardless of what the world thinks. And Satan isn't going to have anything to be able to do about it. Except that he's going to keep tempting. And he, well, and, but we got to remember our comfort is not in this world. It's in the next. See? We get caught up. Oh, I don't want to lose my job, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. Uh, I'm just going to I'm going to go with everybody else. Yeah, you know what? Being fired is not the worst thing in the world. Not telling somebody that they need to not make that choice and all that is it's life changing for them. We need to be doing what's right. The problem is, is we get caught up in our own comfort. Choose to do the right thing, whatever it may be. God's will will be done. Wasn't that Jesus' prayer when he taught the disciples to pray? God's will is done in heaven. This is the only place that God's will is not done. It's on earth. Because we have the ability to choose. That's why we know that there is a choice. Because if it was, everybody would be godly, wouldn't they? If God's will was done on earth, we wouldn't have all this nonsense going on, would we? We have the right to choose. God granted us that. He made us in his image. He has the right to choose. Clearly, Christ had the ability to choose not to be the sacrifice. Because he begged God to let the cup pass. Which meant he had the ability to not choose that. But he can't. It's out of his character. He can't not choose it. But he has the ability. We have the ability to choose to do the will of God. Are we doing it? Are we making God's will in our life? See, we want it to be in everybody else's life. We want to project that out there. We want the government to be godly. We want the president to be godly. We want this person to be godly. What about you? I, 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 I'm, all, I'm good enough. I'll just do whatever I want to do. It's okay. But all the rest of y'all out there, y'all need to be doing what God says, right? Yeah. We, we, the only one we can do for is ourselves. A couple of things to take away with us this week. One, we are part of God's salvation plan. He had a plan. And yes, he chose people, but he chose to use us in the people that he chose his lives so that they would know to choose him. That's a lot of choosing, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> See, that's the thing. God designed the whole system with us as its 
So we need to do. We need to remember we are part of God's salvation plan. Secondly, we need prayer is a form of encouragement to others. When we tell other people we're praying for, it isn't some magical thing that, that because we pray to God that God listens. It tells them that we care enough to be concerned for whatever's happening in their lives. That's, that, that's a, a huge part of it. Yes, God hears our prayers, and we don't know what he does or how they work and all that. But on the personal level, when we talk about praying for other people, it's an encouragement to them. And that's why we do it. And that's why we tell people we're praying for them. And lastly, God is capable of helping... <laughs> I don't know what that was supposed to be. Honor. 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 Yeah, God disappeared. Honor and remain faithful to him. That's what we're supposed to do. We're to honor and remain faithful to him because he's going to take care of us. Let's close in prayer. Father, the world has changed in a blink. And in many cases, we're the enemy now. In our comfy little Christianized part of the world is no longer safe. It's no longer a place where we fit in. Lord, as we begin to struggle with our, the change of our place in our world, help us to rely on you. And that getting along with the world isn't the same as getting along with you. Help us to remain faithful. Help us to honor you. Help us to remember our identity is we're your glory and that that's what people need to see. Not our politics, not our organizations, but you in us. Help us to live that way in Jesus' name. Amen.